Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the Marketing Minds at DoConvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today, as always, is the ad doctor, Andrew Peak. We're here, episode 123, with Becca. Hi. Another exciting week in 2020. Yeah. It's almost over. There's not many left. It's weird. I, I, it's weird. Yeah. My favorite meme has been that, um, if 2020 was a television series, we're just now getting into the season finale. <laughs> we hope so. And then what is 20? I, I'm Debbie Downer here. Oh, like no. COVID's not to be gone in 2020. I think there was this, I had this expectation when it first started. I'm like, oh, this will be like, we'll be done. And it's like, no, COVID is still, still here. It'll be here next year. So that's really, really interesting. This so, uh, is, yeah, not a health show, no, but it is not. interesting to me that we've had multiple builders that we work with, like the owners of the companies who have had, who have contracted COVID and my favorite, I won't reveal the name of the person, but one of them got COVID while he was in Vegas. That sounds awful. And <laughs> then became stuck <laughs> in a hotel room in Vegas for multiple days while he was recovering. That's crazy. But, Imagine the room service built like, I ordered a burger for the builder show. We were at the win. I think it was like $53. Like, and I didn't even like go crazy. I'm like, what? How was it? This? Yeah, what did you put on that burger? I don't like, know. Gold but dust it just, and gold <laughs> receipt. Like I, I was imagine that for three meals. I can't believe my client signed off on that expense report. Did you expense yeah. that? I'm just kidding. All right. It's not, Mike, are you listening? <laughs> Moving on to story time. It's story time. Oh. All it's right, story time. Andrew, you got hey. something here. It looks Ooh, like. Oh, I have. Us. Yeah. So I've. This is a two-part story. The first one is a word of caution. If you're naming communities, make sure you don't have the name of a competing builder in that community, even if it's part of it, because it makes Google Ads and like all of it just very quirky. And what I mean, like, let's say your builder name is um, Oakley Homes, uh -huh. and there's another builder in town named Peak Properties. And Oakley Homes <laughs> makes a community called Peaks Preserve or whatever. Yeah, that's a Google's terrible idea. It, it's a terrible idea. Google's going to get super weird with like, wait, 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 wait. We understand because Google is smart. They understand like branded terms. They see that it's in the domain name. They understand like they can figure out what a branded term is. And you're just, it's like an uphill fight to try to get it to work. And you'll be like, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And then it won't do what you want it to do. And it's because Google's yep. kind of treating it differently because and it's man, branded. Oh man, do we still hear this a lot um, of the builders we work with? The fact that this has probably happened, not, not this specific one you're talking about, but uh, either having a name that already exists and then or, getting yeah. a cease and desist letter four or five times in the last year and a half. And one, yeah. one I just heard today on a coaching call, uh -huh. That's funny. Uh, a builder Time. who's the master plan has been in process now publicity has been around for four years on this project. They've been oh, actively yeah. building it now for a year and a half. And they just got another new alert from someone else who uses the same community name who is taking them to court. And it's like, at this point, they really just want to try to settle. I would imagine settle and pay a fine to them essentially yeah, to continue to use it because I just don't know how. That's a long time to be like, yeah, we'll change it. No big deal. Where do you live? I don't know. It's almost anymore. like how stock photography sites, they like let it, they lay low for a while. And then when they oh. catch you, they're like, 
Now, how many times have you used this? Well, if you would have told me that, the, you know, it was a problem before, I would have used it once, but I've used it 10 times in the last year. So now it's a bigger fine. It's a big fine. It feels we like they're just waiting for them on that one. We have a slightly different scenario, but kind of the same thing. So our neighborhood, Ashcroft Park, is sold out and the developer is gone. However, there's a new Ashcroft Park that's about a mile away. And what? they like have their signs Why would on they the do corner. That? Yeah, I don't know. That is weird. Um, yeah. Super. Is it a smaller builder? Yeah. I feel like it's something it's some del- guys like, do it like this. And he's just had yes. some terrible idea and they have to go with it because that's what he the told his said. office assistant. We should do like what they did a mile down the road. And she just literally thought it was copy paste. Yes. Like the, the name, are, the entry monument, everything. That is terrible. That is well, terrible. they don't have an entry mon- monument and the houses are a totally different price point. Oh, weird. So. Yeah. So you guys uh, on your board, you just need to vote to rename your community like <laughs> estates Anything. at the end of it. There you go. Yeah. Ashcroft okay. Park Estates. That way you're the fancy. <laughs> It'll help your housing values. Okay. And this is not, <laughs> right. We don't have enough. We don't have like an amount of time, but I do have to tell you guys this story. Oh, no. there's, a, there's a place called Legacy Village in Pittsburgh. It was a 55 villa, plus like community? 55 plus community. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Legacy. I figured. And there was um, a project right behind it that we took over and it was just regular community. It was just a regular single family neighborhood. And man, I don't remember the, all the details here. It's, it's been too long, seven years ago now, but in essence, there was another community across the street, kind of like what your setup is, Andrew, two communities mm-hmm. right across the street from each other that share a similar name. Yep. And they had like eight home sites left in there that when they took it over. And so on our website, it wasn't the name of the community, but on our website, the sales manager and I agreed. And this isn't what I would do now. This is like old school Kevin. But I was like, <laughs> let's call it the name of this million dollar neighborhood, but then add estates on the end of it. Because there were these lots that were bigger, but the whole neighborhood was lower end than the million dollar homes. And I'll never That's forget, funny. like two months later, she's like, these rich people are really pissed off that we're marketing <laughs> the estates, even though they actually live in the nicer place, like the naming convention. And it did, it worked that we sold out of those lots um, that had been sitting for a long time when we renamed nice. it on the website. Sneaky only. Kevin, sneaky <laughs> Kevin. And then, okay. Second part of my story is, have you received the Amazon printed Christmas catalog geared towards children? Becca, I, I don't think you would have. No, Kevin I has. did. Yeah. Okay. And I immediately just tossed it over to my kids and said, grab a pen, everyone, different color pen, mark it up. Right. It's, it's the best. genius. It is genius. <laughs> and I've seen different people post on it. So I'm assuming just thinking about that, like they see, are you worthy of this printed catalog based on your Amazon purchase history? Do you have kids based on your Amazon purchase history? And I've always said, Kevin, or we both said it, like your Amazon account is the most private thing ever. Who cares about what Facebook learns about you or yeah. Google, but like what happens on Amazon is you. It's not this, like what you're looking for or whatever, like mm-hmm. this is what you do. So we got it. And then Adeline, our three-year-old, she's obsessed with it. She goes buying is what she calls it. B-U-Y-I-N. She goes buying every night before bed and she circles the entire thing. But I'm like, Amazon is amazing. Like this is, it was so old school, but it's like you, I don't I didn't expect it. I'm like, oh, look at this in the mail. This is cool. And then sure enough, I'm like, this is the catalog. Why would they, it's on the website. Like, why would they print it? But like, sure enough, 
our three-year-old is looking at it every day for an hour. Well, it's old as new again. And yes. also overall less amount. I mean, I am seeing someone accidentally put it. They thought I was a different Kevin from like the, the mail house they were working with. And so I've been on the string of, I swear to goodness, like 10 emails back and forth about a single postcard, which is more emails than we would have back and forth about five or six digital campaigns, which is reason enough not to do direct mail, but uh, people are doing it more often than they, than they have been. I'm not saying you should, but I I am seeing a resurgence in certain instances of people using direct mail. But also kids can't go or kids don't get to go to toy stores or target or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Super time. This is them touching and feeling it without touching and feeling it. But I think for builders, it'd be interesting if there's a (laughs) <laughs> we don't have the purchase history. That's it's different when you have repeat yeah. transactions and there's, oh geez, the peaks spend this much on Amazon every month. That's the big difference. That's you the nailed it. Pivot. This is not the Toys R Us catalog that went to every household in the oh. entire metro area. Like you no. said, nope. they they know who needs to get this catalog, and who doesn't. Yep. They have know either have yep. either of you looked at your Amazon purchase changes over the years? Like your um, amount of purchases over the I last five years. I'll try to do that because looking at, I just pulled up our account. We have purchases back to 2008, which mm-hmm. feels crazy to me. And they're yeah. all, those are all textbooks. Yeah. It's like college started the Amazon account. And then. Is there an easy way to see that Becca? Cause I've definitely gone back through order history to reorder things that I've ordered before. You There's can a, look at by year. If you go okay. orders. And, and it just tells you a total number. Years. Oh, here you go. Yeah, I'll give you. Cause he was really <laughs> curious. And I think we've like quadrupled what we would normally do in like the first six months. Yeah. Welcome to game time. Let's, let's figure yeah. this out. I'll give some quick numbers. So 2018, we had 126, 2019, we had 213, 2020 with two months left. We have 222. Oh, you're oh, beating so me. You're not we only have 210. Much. We have some auto ship that we started in there, um, which definitely is hey, super honey, nice. We need to order 10 more things. The peaks are ahead of us. Oh man. <laughs> I think we, should, we, yeah, we can I get a total dollar amount. <laughs> That'd be fun. That would not be fun, actually. Like, how much did you spend? We're, I think we're at like 400 things because we ordered the little what? things. Man. You're in the how middle many, of nowhere. How many kids right. do you have so far? Uh, well, none, but <laughs> <laughs> one is cooking, but we have one cooking. So there's those things. This one is and negative. Yeah. Everything wow. for the for the nursery has come from there. That's crazy. Interesting. Yeah, we don't order any groceries or anything from Amazon. So no. maybe that's no. part of the no? we'll do random this isn't like almond butter, like random things like that that can be cheaper on Amazon mm-hmm. that are staples. But yeah, okay. well, one last that's thing right. I've got up on the screen here for you guys to see is I, I we were <laughs> on a coaching call, the Mattel Barbie Dream House came up. Okay. Uh, a builder's doing kind of a cool uh giveaway to nonprofit organizations of actual Barbie dream houses for every household. Um, hmm. And I was just looking up to see what the latest Barbie dream house looks like because we bought one two years ago for both of our girls. Uh-huh. And I was, what struck me about this, Andrew, you probably are picking this up already is target says exactly what it, what you would think it says Barbie dream house play set 179. Yep. Coles, Mattel, Barbie dream house, 199. Mm-hmm. Amazon Barbie dream house, doll house, with wheelchair, accessible elevator, pool, slide, and 70 accessories, including furniture and household items, gift for three to seven-year-olds, multicolor. Great. Now, yes. Like, that's just, it's just classic of one company is going the extra mile 
for on Amazon SEO, right? Like making sure that if you're searching on Amazon for gifts for three to seven year olds, you're finding it. But also that then impacts Google as well. And if I'm looking at both, if, if I'm looking at this page, the price is the same as Target, but just the amount of characters, the image is very similar. There is a slight difference with the Amazon one. It's, it's wheelchair accessible versus a regular elevator. But just the amount of content there and reviews, 950 versus 156, it's like, I'm going there. Don't you feel do they, this is... Go ahead, Becca. I was just going to say, do they both have videos? What were you going to say? I was going to say, I feel like Coles is scamming us with how many reviews that they have compared to Amazon. Like, I'm like, I know they're yeah, lying 1,800 or reviews, right? Yeah. They're versus probably aggregating it from all over somehow. Yeah. If it does look... It's interesting. The design looks like a house in Colorado. Yes. Right? It, like it, a Denver uh-huh. floor plan. Yep. All right. Interesting. Um, Back oh, to story I time. Have, I have to amend my numbers. Our total is 98, not 400. <laughs> okay, good. I was going to say, I don't know what you're... <laughs> That's more than one a day. Oh, right? man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, back so we're you, still winning. Shoot. I don't have anything down here for you, right? Right. Okay. That's all right. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back. To Other than we time. all need to keep our thoughts and prayers with her. She's on the board of her HOA. Yes. And... <laughs> Press she one for needs prayer, love for <laughs> sure. Okay. My story time. I was talking on a, on a different coaching call about some, some, someone who has experience in the film industry before they got into home building marketing, they were in the film industry and they were telling me about, um, their former boss said that who now works for Netflix, no surprise, instead of, uh, the previous film company that Netflix has purchased full out purchased billboards. They don't even want to rent them from anyone else. They just wanted to purchase them for their own use. And he was like, why are you doing that? You're a digital company, a tech company. What are you doing that for? And the reason is not what you would think. They wanted the, the ones that they purchased were all where they knew that directors and producers of content would see their own stuff being promoted heavily. Oh, that's funny. Internal marketing, right? To, to a different audience for a different reason. This is the same reason you see a lot of healthcare advertising and you're like, I really don't have that much choice in which emergency room I'm going to go to in most <laughs> places in the country, right? Or where I'm going to go. Yeah. It's like where the Whatever's entrance closest. says, which is closest, whatever. Uh, again, different audience. And that made me remember too, that when I was in Pittsburgh, they had just built a brand new hockey arena and console energy got the naming rights and it was like three to $5 million a year just for the naming rights of this arena. Console energy is a coal company. It's like, what are you doing that for? And, um, I, I knew someone who was working with the executive team there and they had purchased the naming rights to get better, uh, employment. They're like, one, it's, it's just good morale building. The guys who work in, in the coal mines, et cetera, they tend to be, you know, these manly guys who love this gritty sport and they, they watch it. And so it makes them feel good to have the name of the company they work for. But the second thing was recruiting high level executives to come to move to Pittsburgh to work for a coal company and getting the high talent level they needed. They wanted to have the name on the arena, to have the, the, the suite at the stadium to take them to. And, and these are things, these are examples of things that make no sense. If you're thinking about, I'm spending money to get a return on my investment. What you have to remember is that companies that are highly profitable. Now, Netflix is not highly profitable, but they're in, in growth mode. Console is highly profitable. 
they're essentially making a calculation of I could pay taxes or I could invest in my brand. Like there's no reason for them really to not spend the money unless they just want to save a percentage of it and spend taxes on the rest. If that makes sense. I don't know how many of you are following my, Mm -hmm. that makes sense to me. Profit and loss conversation here, but we could pay $3 million in taxes or we could pay $1 million in taxes, spend $2 million on this thing that it gives us some tangible benefit or solves some other problem, but isn't for a return on return on investment in terms of dollars and cents in a, in a finite period of time. And so that's really dangerous if you're looking at other industries or other companies and they're like, man, why this always comes back to like, why can't we do X, Y, Z like Apple computer or Amazon or Netflix or even console energy? Cause there's probably a whole different business reason why the marketing thing that you think is so cool is being done and it has nothing to do with anything that your CEO cares about right now. And so you just got to, it goes back to knowing the kind of company you're working for, what their goals are and aligning yourself to them. Um, Because if you just mimic them just because that's a really bad idea. The other quick story I have is the marketing report that we looked at at Pulse and we've talked about before, I just did it again and, and with someone who had a struggling neighborhood. Now the average uh, conversion rate currently on this builder's website, they're getting ready to to build a new one with O'Neill Interactive. Woohoo. That'll be great. Nice. It'll it'll definitely help things out. Right now they have an average of 0.83% conversion on their traffic from their website, which is okay. not great, to be clear. But they only have really one struggling neighborhood. And so we did the math in that report. And their their website traffic to lead conversion ratio is 0.1%. And 0.1 versus 0.8, those are both small numbers, and it doesn't seem like, I mean, it's definitely bad, but how bad is it really, Kevin? It's 700% worse. We (laughs) we did the math that they would have to spend $4,000 a month just on that neighborhood to have a shot in heck at getting the sales volume they want. And what it boiled down to was the marketers needs to have a quick conversation with everyone and say, are we okay spending four grand? Because if we are, that's the easy button. We can do that. Uh, but if that does, that makes us uncomfortable, then we've got to look at something else as the way that we're going to fix this problem. I just thought that was a quick, uh, recent example nice. of using that report the best way you're, possible. You're going to send me down a rabbit hole of learning about um, building billboards and owning billboards because I, like that's <laughs> like what is the like that's an asset now for Netflix. Yes, it did cost money to buy it. Like, is that how many years does it take for that to zero out as far as like, oh, we spend mm-hmm. whatever Well, I think the other reason from, from Netflix's perspective is they can change that very often and just pay the, the true cost of changing out that board mm-hmm. if it's not digital to the next thing for the next week and it's in a prominent location. doesn't have to be the same for very long. There, there's, there's definitely other things there, but for goodness Makes sakes, me. why wouldn't you just spend, I mean, if it costs yeah. them, let's just say $3 million a board. That's or, a lot of social ads to promote something to. A lot of social it, ads. It would not have yeah. potentially reached the audience of the 50-year-old producer who doesn't use social media in the same yeah. way. So, For sure. All right. Fun uh, story. Moving on to the news. <laughs> Budgeting time is upon us. Uh, so we have updated the Do You Convert budget guide uh, for 2021. Oh, you can find that at now.doyouconvert.com slash budget 2021. Link in the show notes. We'll talk more about that later, but you can grab that now and start crunching out the numbers. Uh, it's broken out by size of company from revenue. And then whether you are building a website or not. 
Uh, so you got a couple oh, decisions a to make there, and that's then there's nice. multiple outcomes depending on that. And again, it's just a starting point for for you as you're working through it, not an ending point, but it's there for you to to look at. All right, moving on from doyouconvert.com, a lovely little website. The new Google, Google the new Google Analytics. We talked about this briefly last episode, but Andrew got some time to dig in a little bit more and Ooh, uh, yeah. to see it for himself. It's fun. And it's going to be different. It and is different. It's a little bit scary different, not not in the scary of like oh we got to learn something new. And this is probably just me being old and overly skeptical, but they're changing <laughs> a lot of like um what used to be the analytic code is now called something completely different. Data data stream. The data stream. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, thought. So so anytime we start seeing that where they're changing definitions of words, it definitely allows them the opportunity in our brains to kind of, oh no, well, I know that's how it used to work, but you're thinking of that old word, which is which is the analytic code. This is the data stream, which is totally different, but it's still the same. But now they get to say like, <laughs> it's totally different. So Fancy. this is why you can't do X, Y. Like it's just a little bit shady, I think, to do some things like that. But um, also it does have some potential upsides down the road, but Andrew, you'll, you'll keep an eye on it for us and you can go check out the, Yep. And I'll be adding to the, I, I put a quick little blog post up so people are more aware about it. Um, and I'll put more screenshots as I dive into it, because like Kevin said, it's completely brand new. Um, there's no like acquisition source medium that it, like, that's not there anymore. Like it's completely different. Yeah, It's, it's uh, there, but it's hidden. You have to create basically all your, like the number of reports, the standard reports that are in analytics are almost non-existent in comparison on the new one. But it does give you a way it looks like to, to make more of your own. But if you're like, uh, I just want to turn on, turn, turn the keys to my car and have it run. This is not currently nope. set up that way. Mm -mm. And you also, you said, have to create a whole new property for it to work. You can't yeah, just transition so, your existing account over to it yet. Correct. Which is probably good. Like it doesn't automatically mm -hmm. push you to yeah. analytics for, it's almost like, I don't know if they will permanently have two different versions, but based on how they've done Google ad changes, I would think we would have the quote old version for like two years, like I did, yeah. I would not be. Part of me feels out on first glance when you showed this to me the other day is that analytics four is really e-commerce edition right now. The, the terminology they're using, the ways that they're setting it up. So it'd mm -hmm. be great if they like created a different product for true e-commerce and then another product for longer life cycle sales, things like homes. That'd be, yeah. that'd be cool. It would be cool. Mm-hmm. All right, from TheVerge.com, the U.S. government has filed antitrust charges against Google. This is dated October 20th. I was uh, dropping my daughter off to school when I heard the announcement, and I thought, oh, boy. Uh, oh, boy. I mean, oh, boy. <laughs> here's the thing. It sounds to me like they're going after Google for the acquisition of, of other companies and sources and paying money to to Apple, for example, to be the default search engine, all that stuff seems less monopolistic than where I think they should have gone. Like the connection between their core product and Google ads, as an example, and how they keep saying there is no connection, but obviously there is some connection. <laughs> I think yeah. that that's probably harder yeah. for them to prove or to, to challenge, but that's not really where they're going. No, I, I read it as that they were going after too when you type in questions into Google and then the answers pop up and you don't actually visit any sites. Mm -hmm. So they're saying that that's 
Which that I agree from, with completely. Yeah, yeah. They're changing from the turnstile to the internet to like, here's our gate, you stay here. Mm-hmm. And they've, you know, um, Rand Fishkin at Moz was yeah, has, has been on this, this for a long time of like, they're not just the gateway, they're, they're stealing content from other folks essentially and, yeah. and putting it on their servers so that you don't have to go there to read it so that they don't have to pay AdSense dollars for ads to be displayed there either. So it's, it's like a two for one for them. They don't have to pay out from an advertising perspective and they also get to keep you on their platform. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is, there's like this core government has realized the power that Google has and they're, they're uncomfortable <laughs> with it. When I think this is getting like philosophical, like we as a society, like, like if we don't know that, I don't think most people think about it, but like what is on Google is the answer regardless of it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. But then you get into like, well, who gets to decide what's right or wrong? All this crazy stuff. But I'm definitely like, well, if there was better options, people would use them. Yeah. But are there better options? Bing. And how do you manage different gateways to the same internet? It's, yeah, it's a strange I, I don't, question. I, I don't even know how you would, how you decide if there's a better option in search. I mean, when you think about the number of times you have to do something to create a habit and the number of times you do a search in a day, yeah. like I don't, I'm trying to think what would a better search engine do for me that would cause me to want to force myself to break that habit. I don't know. And it's, that, you'd and have I, to... the, the number, the amount estimated that, that Google has paid people like Apple to be the default search engine it's like 17 to 24% of their services revenue for the year was the estimate. Like, wow, that's how much Google is paying Apple to do that. And so the question mm-hmm. is, okay, you prevent that from happening. Well, how is Apple going to decide who's the default search engine then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they put so, someone else is going to pay them money. How is that? You Duck, know, Duck, go. That, that actually is monopolistic to say the highest bidder gets to be the default search. Anyway, uh, I do think eventually the government just has to show some strength here by making things happen. I just have zero confidence in government's ability to even understand how to, I I keep saying this, I'm not going to vote for any president who doesn't know how to install and uninstall an app from a phone. Right. Like (laughs) if I I was in the audience at a debate, I would just be like, can you please install an app for me and uninstall it? Okay, great. Like I'd great. You should not be making laws about this, but at the same time, we need them to make laws about this. So it's a tough spot to be in, but I'm all for uh, antitrust coming to a lot of these Mm -hmm. companies. I think it's actually would be, would be nice to break them up and to, I mean, um, Scott Galloway, who's someone I listen to a lot, basically said, you know, if you broke up Google and YouTube, instantly YouTube would get into search and Google would start a video extension and like rebirthing YouTube in essence. And that'd be good for, for, for both categories if they did that. Maybe YouTube goes more kid-friendly and says we're going to have search that, it, you know. It, anyway, it's just, it would be great to see uh, some more innovation yeah. there. All right, next up from TechCrunch, Facebook is working on Neighborhoods, a Nextdoor clone based oh, on local groups. <laughs> this is what we just talked about, except right? Facebook. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is super cool. I think it is cool, but I I have a prediction is that they're Mm -hmm. one day just going to turn it on and add you to a neighborhood. Yeah. Hey, we think this is where you live. You're now part of this neighborhood. And that's not how I would do it. So, yeah, 
that's kind of how the article made it sound like I, we already have a neighborhood, um, Facebook Mm -hmm. group and there is an admin and it seemed like that one they're trying to make no admin, no oversight, just you live in this neighborhood. Here you go. I think the, what they see on there, this is my assumption of what they see in there and is the growth and very localized groups and pages. Mm -hmm. Like down here, we have, we have our own community group, but there's, we have Mike's weather page, which is a meteorologist. Who's just some dude. He's like got like a million followers. He's 10 minutes up the road from me. And then we have Ion TV, which is West Pinellas County. If you don't know what that means, it doesn't matter. That's the intent. Like I know what it means. And there's people, there's 90,000 people that follow it. Every accident in like a four mile radius or every police call is posted on there. And it's people like, what's going on? Why is there a helicopter above my house? And it's totally like noise of like things that happen every single day. But I think Facebook is like, people love this stuff. You'll be like wreck at 102nd and, and someone mm-hmm. Boulevard. Only I care about that. No one else mm-hmm. cares about that. But there'll be a hundred comments on it. Like, and it's like, not, there's nothing to talk about. I think that's what they're trying to yeah. make mm-hmm. easier to connect everyone with. Things like that. Um, maybe not. And before we get into the implications of this for, for home builders and developers, I think this is the quote from the article that, like you said, Becca, this makes it like, what are they thinking? Unlike Nextdoor and unlike Facebook groups, they are not created, built, or run by admins, nor do they have community ambassadors, which is what Nextdoor has that kind of help curate and manage it. They're just generated by Facebook automatically from the data. And I just think that's... Now, at the same point, how do you determine who should be the quote-unquote mayor of the Facebook neighborhood group for an area? So on that sense, it's like any come one, come all, but you're going to have to be somehow going to prove or Facebook's going to have to know the actual geographic area that your home is located in or if you to gain access to it. But you can imagine, well, yeah. Or like, we know you're here. Right. (laughs) Obviously there's potential fantastic ad opportunities for these kind of groups though. Yeah. As long. Good. I mean, if they know you're in this neighborhood, they know how long you're in the neighborhood and how often you're likely to change neighborhoods they then know when to help you buy and sell a house yep or and encouraging those that if you sold to someone a sold a house to someone you would say hey if you're in a facebook neighborhood you know giving them content or helping them create content or somehow incentivizing them Mm -hmm. of course it's going to have to be disclosed but it doesn't really matter once people see it they see it like Smith family is leaving this neighborhood and we're going to that neighborhood and it's like, and it's where all the cool kids are going and it's amazing house and look at our process. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or those things will be like, like a new community will be talked about more just because it's everything. People will get more used to talking about what is half mile circle around them, everything that's going on. And they have a place to connect with people that are right there that they wouldn't otherwise, you know, connect. Which thing you might be like, really? I live next to these people. This is not good. I'm moving. <laughs> like I'm, I'm done with this. Like, yeah. I don't even know them. Yep. I think groups are fantastic. I mean, they really are a great tool. I've I've yeah. now very rarely post things publicly on Facebook. Like ninety five percent of what I put out there is within yeah. the market group marketing group. Because that's yeah. the, it's more out of concern for people who don't want to hear about home builder marketing than anything. That's it's funny. not like I'm speaking to that group only. It's just, 
that's the people who would care about what I'm saying anyway. So that's where I'm going to put it. I agree. Yeah. It's just, so, so that's, you know, that's what they're working towards is just finding ways to make more natural groups. Just like I, I expect them to put people in groups based upon family at some point too, one way or the other. All right. Moving on from Inman.com mortgage purchases forecasted to set a record in 2021. The Mortgage Bankers Association on Wednesday predicted that purchase origination volume would grow 8.5% year over year to a new record of 1.54 trillion in 2021. So total transaction volume increasing in next year, another eight and a half percent on top of the growth for this year. I mean, that makes sense when you think about how many builders have homes on the books to close in the first and second quarter of next year. Yeah, I think maybe they'll add more. Like right now, today, October 22nd, home builder stocks are getting crushed overall, despite the fact that they have reported good numbers on their earnings because there's this delay. Like the sales numbers are through the roof. The start numbers are not growing at the same because it takes a while to build up that capacity to be able to start more homes. I posted in the Facebook group the article about a gentleman who was a chef, got coronavirus, lost his job. Now he builds houses for a living. (laughs) That's an awesome story. We need more of those people. But the start volume isn't keeping up with the sale volume. And so it makes sense that if that volume continues to increase and people are willing to show their houses again and put them on the market at a greater extent, um, that the total number of transactions will continue. Also, I I was on a ULI panel yesterday uh, about... um, the pandemic and consumer reactions. And right before that, Allie Wolf was giving a talk. It was just really interesting to hear um, people are still overall, I, I think to a surprising degree, like are things going to stop tomorrow? Like is the whole great market conditions that we have, is it dead like within a week? And I, <clears throat> there's no doubt that inflation, I think in the next three years, two to three years hits and rates go up. And, uh, mm-hmm. but again, like we talked about, they've already said, even if interest, if, if uh, inflation starts hitting, we're not going to react immediately. We're going to give it time, which is different than, than normally how they have responded. So I think over the next two to three years, there will, without a doubt, be a more challenging time ahead. But Allie, myself, which I don't put in the same category from an economics perspective as Allie, <laughs> but a lot of the people who are really spending a lot of time thinking about this, I, don't, I really don't hear many people talking about 2021 being the time when we're going to be really impacted to, to a severe degree by a shift in the overall housing market. It's more 2022 and beyond. So for now, let the good times roll. Let them roll. Do something risky. Take take a risk. Do you uh, think... Get started. I'm taking you outside your box because you just said... <laughs> do you <laughs> think it'll be more... Slowdowns will be more localized? Um, like, it won't be like, I don't know. Is that like... Say San Francisco, like they're mm-hmm. gonna be like, and then Texas, gonna keep on going, or wherever people are are going to. Like we talked about people migrating to less city center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that was one of the questions that someone asked was, when the slowdowns happen, will it be more regional? Like, will, yeah. how will re- different regions respond? And again, it was more or less next year. It's gonna because because again, we can't keep up with the existing demand. It's not like the supply demand balance anywhere right now is where it should be. So it's going to take a long time for that to start to even out. So yes, yep. eventually, but probably not in the spring market of 2021 
probably not by the summer of 2021. Again, you think about some builders now are telling people, right? You sign a contract today. You don't move in for a year. That, that just gives That's you a crazy. sense of like, yeah, it, it's not going to be an overnight change. Nope. It can't, it, it, those timeframes are expanded so wide. Yeah. That it, it's just going to be a different. Could different you imagine thing. building like a, a non-custom home? That's just, okay. This is a, and the two fifties to four hundreds, like it'll be a year. You're like, what? Excuse me. Is this really how it is? And then you hear that multiple times and then still you get used to it. But imagine oh, that's your first experience building. Yeah. You're like, wow. Okay. I yeah, have no idea. And, this and on calls, I have to always clarify, are you talking about actual construction time or the time from when you sign the contract till the time you were estimated to move in? Because mm, the bigger yeah. gap, it seems like overall in the, in the country right now is it's that initial start time. Once things get going, more or less, they've been able to manage keeping okay. on a pretty consistent schedule. It's the, the, it's, it's the backlog okay. of just getting started that people can't catch gotcha. up with. So we need more trades. <clears throat> we need we more trades. Have. But that reminds me of another, um, story time. another story time to bring in here at the end <laughs> on a coaching oh, call with someone. And uh, this is a builder who has three different markets that they work uh, uh, service. And one of those three division presidents decided that they were going to limit the number of sales in every community every month by no more than two. So every neighborhood, you only get two sales, which is an interesting call. There's pros and cons to that. We don't have time to get into that right now. The interesting thing is they didn't tell the online sales team. (laughs) (laughs) Seems important. Whoops. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things to think through about that. Essentially, when you get in that scenario, every month is a pre-sale without fail event for every community. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't, like if your calls to actions are the same, if you're not changing how much you're spending and where you're bringing people in from, your conversations from the online sales perspective are the same, like you're setting people up for a rude awakening and an unhappy experience when they realize that not only is it going to take a year to build a house, you're not going to be able to sign the agreement to start that year long process for maybe four months. Because the sales team, and I mean, we got into this a little bit with them. The sales team is probably already thinking, well, okay, I know the two people who I'm going to sell to in November. I've I've talked to them Mm -hmm. already. I know Uh the two in December. So when someone gets an appointment, they come in, that salesperson is likely, if they're not trained and they don't have a plan, well, I've already got the the next two months sold, even though they really don't because they're not allowed to. And they're like, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's a disaster waiting to happen. Sounds like a disaster. We also had someone who... An online salesperson scheduled 20 appointments for a new phase of an existing community that opened and then was told, because they were told it's ready to go, green light go. And then I think it was the next day they were told, you need to call those 20 people back, please, and explain to them that they're all gone. All the homes are gone? Yeah. They're already sold. I'd be so mad. Everyone was like, there's that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Should like, so, do, do I get the commission on the appointments? Yeah. The, the word of the week is everyone is communication. Communication. Again, communication. Uh, communication. You know, at the CEO level, at the CMO level, at the VP of sales, you can make these kind of calls, but you need to communicate with the entire team first to make sure you, you understand all the impacts. It sounds great to be like, yeah, just two sales every month. You guys figure it out. But you just you can't, you, you can't do that. Shouldn't do that. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Dave Miles from Miles Brand, a uh, branding and placemaking expert in our industry. We'll be right back.
we're back this week with David Miles, the president and co-founder of Miles Brand, the company who I would say has the absolute best tagline in our industry, Miles Brand from land to brand. It just, it's magical on your website. It tells me for sure that you understand brand from B to D. (laughs) That's what a terrible joke to start off here. But thank you for joining us, David. Kevin, it's my pleasure. Uh, I admire what you guys do at Do Your Convert and the content that you create and how you help educate the industry. So it's an honor to be on today's show. And we find ourselves in interesting times for sure. Some people might, in fact, even just pre before we got going, we were talking about you know brand, its importance, ebbs and flows at times in in kind of the the bigger picture of society. And and right now. I would argue, and I imagine you agree, it might be more important than ever in many cases. What do you think of that? Yes. Well, you know, Miles Brand is focused on the new home industry. So we work primarily with privately owned home builders or with master plan or mixed use community developers. And we've changed our name to Miles Brand because we saw the importance of branding way back in 1998, not just advertising. And so as we've continued to evolve with that focus, we think the conversation about branding is more important than ever. That's because we define branding as the practice of producing trust. And trust is what everyone is looking for today. There's so much fear and mistrust in our institutions and our our leaders, pandemics, you name it. So... That conversation around how to build trust is timeless. You beat me right to my second question because I also feel like if I brought on 50 different people and asked them what branding was, we might get That's what 48 different answers from those 50 people. So you, you helped clarify that right away. How important then would you place things that people who aren't you and I might think of when we say the word brand in terms of building trust, how much of it is connected to, to colors and fonts and logos versus a more holistic view of what that term really entails the way you were, you were describing it. How, how does it all relate together? Does it fit? That's a great question. I think most people, when you ask them about, about branding, they're going to think about consumer goods, you know, Nike or Apple or, or things like that, that they, they have an emotional connection with. They make these selections in terms of the tribes that they align with to express who they are as a person. And so all of these companies are appealing to certain buyer personas and, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs from shelter all the way up to self-actualization. You know, how do I express who I am, right? And the home building industry, it's a little different because Mm -hmm. you don't buy a home every week. There's no such thing as loyalty, if you will. Repeat purchases are very, very rare. So when it comes to focusing on building trust within the new home industry, if you're a home builder, I've come to the conclusion your focus should be on internal branding more than external. Because as you know, what home builders look for from marketing is lead generation and conversion almost exclusively because they're not, I mean, it's important for them to have a presence in their marketplace and be a good citizen and take the long view around 
what their brand will be perceived as. But a lot of that is also related to recruiting the right people and then building a culture based on trust internally. And so as we take people through our branding process, the first thing we do is a brand charrette. And we focus on, on four things there. What is the organizational identity? What is the buyer identity? What is the competitive identity? And what is the product identity? And we're looking for brand DNA. What makes this organization different than any other? And almost always the DNA is in the organizational identity. And so we begin by asking them, all right, what is the purpose of this business? You could call that your why, if you will. Mm -hmm. Why are you in business? And then we look at what is your, what are your core values? Because the core values, what many people don't realize about core values, we have core values in organizations to drive the behavior that we want from our people, right? So that purpose becomes very, very important because you need to be able to express that very, very simply. Let me use my company, if you will, for, for an example. At Miles Brand, the purpose of our business, we thought long and hard about this, is not about our customers, it's about our people. So the purpose of Miles Brand is to provide the best job anyone has ever had. Now that's a big promise. Yeah, it's a big promise. It's extremely hard to do. Just think about what you need to do to fulfill on that. You're setting this expectation that you're gonna get paid more, you're gonna have better benefits, more time off, And then we bring in our core values to back that up of respect, full engagement and growth. And we explain to them how all of those play into creating the best job you've ever had. But then we also have to go to the other side and say, all right, now here's your role as, as a team member, here's what you need to do. And as we go to market, before we can ever go to market, we've got to build that trust internally that we will fulfill on our promises and then we'll go fulfill on our promises to our customers and help our customers build trust with their customers. Trust, I think, is a word that you've already said a lot. Do you have any trust concern? Me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have concern based upon what's happening in today's market that some builders are setting themselves up to be almost incapable of maintaining trust, whether it's promising sales too far into the future? closing dates that might be hard to meet with shortages of materials or just the sheer volume of what a lot of builders are seeing. There's also this bigger risk that comes, not just financial risk. That's, I think it was now, Andrew, I don't know if I ever showed you this clip. Um, Gary Vaynerchuk was speaking at PCBC maybe 10 Nine, years ten ago years now. Ago. Nine, I think I watched the old interview with Mike. And at the time I was working in marketing for a builder. And so no one was asking the question. So I stood up nervous as I'll get out. And I said, Gary, here's my problem is that the brand can be fantastic. Everything can be wonderful. And then storm comes through and blows the house over or one project manager gets an entire community against you. Basically my point to him was construction mistakes and defects can quickly, uh, certainly the, having a good brand gives you a a bulkhead, a, a way to to lessen the impact of that. Mistakes that are made on the construction end are expensive in many ways. It may be expensive to fix. And, and also, you, can't, you, can't, you certainly can't advertise your way out of it. Uh, brands mm. have, have more of a way to rescue you, but they're still not invincible for all time. I mean, at some point, culturally, the company has to make sure that they're focused on the customer. 
I was going to say during the whole building process that trust, there might be like a trust meter at the beginning. <laughs> you're happy. You're, I signed the contract. I'm so excited. And that trust meter can fade quickly fade yeah, Dave, away. If you don't have the trustometer already and trademarked, I think I feel like that should be your, your next. Yeah. And then to what, you probably have to like somehow do things to fill it back up or like mm-hmm. if there, it might reach a point where you cannot recover, uh, which I think that's what you're talking about, Kevin, like the whole community because of this one project manager is now against the builder just because of one person. Yeah. Have you, have you ever experienced anything like that, Dave, where the, where <laughs> crisis management, is that, is that another part of a brand management? Dave, we have a problem. <laughs> we need you. Yes. You know, we say the way that you build trust is by fulfilling on the promises that you make, which I mentioned before. And it really comes back then to that cultural aspect of what does our company stand for and how will we do business? And does everyone within the organization understand that? And are we willing to, to do that no matter what? You know, there's an old question, what would you be willing to die for in life? And it's similar to me within organizations. You know, what would you be willing to go to the mat for? Because once we make those promises, we have to back them up. And that's, that's the issue with home building. I, I once heard there was more than 30,000 construction defects that can occur in just in or steps in constructing a home. It's probably more than that today. Sounds about right. Yeah. Now you layer on wow. how the power of the transaction has switched from the provider to the purchaser and the enormous influence they can have on a brand, on a home builder brand or a community or people. And it's very, very scary. So I think there are always ways, though, using the, I would say, indoctrination of the values of the brand uh, when problems arise to uh, turn that into an opportunity to increase the brand's equity and value by how you deal with that. Never living in denial, never lying, accepting responsibility, um, having the courage to stand up and be empathetic, be recognize the pain and fear that is being layered on in another way through the largest purchase you ever make with something going wrong. And you're worrying, okay, are they going to fix it? Are we going to fight? You know, do I have to get a lawyer? Mm-hmm. Man, if you, that's, there's a huge opportunity there. And, and uh, you know, hopefully there's only a few of those kind of opportunities because they're difficult to deal with. But I think any good sales trainer or sales manager is excellent at helping people understand how to deal with those problems and turn them into a great solution. Yeah. And I think it's part of marketing's job to help if the owner doesn't understand that in terms of a financial impact. I made up a fake number once, which probably isn't best practice. <laughs> but I just told my my builder at one time, I said, every time someone posts a negative review, you need to give me another $10,000 in my budget. And it's like, just so, just so when you're, when you're calculating, like, should I fix this problem or not? That might lead to a negative review. Just ask yourself, is it less than $10,000? And it really helped him. Uh, and I told him it was a made up number. I didn't pretend that it was a real one. I just said, I have to out shout them if I can't out, you know, if the reality isn't changed, then I've got to over communicate that. And eventually it won't work anyway. So it's, uh, it, I think that's what always drives a lot of marketers nuts is my builder refuses out of principle to fix this $250 problem and how much 
more efficient would all of our advertising and marketing efforts be if we just took care of it? You know, that's interesting because I think the clients that are attracted to Miles Brand come to us for many different reasons, but I think our creative, uh, the way we're able to express their brand and connect with people on an emotional level has always been one of our strengths. And so I don't run into too many clients who I have to explain these things to. And I mean, I just have different kinds of clients who, who already get that and they come to us because they want right. <laughs> superior um, strategic partnerships in every area of their business. Right. But um, yeah, I can see how that happens when we get short-sighted or, you know, I've, I've done it myself, you know, uh, we all have. But I don't run into that as much. I'm, we're very fortunate with the quality of clients we, yeah, that's we get to That definitely speaks again to your brand and the type of people you attract, like you said. And we, we don't see it either, but I, that seems like the more common questions that we get from the outsider. If you're, if you're speaking at the builder show or something, you get the person who walks up to you and like, how can I convince my builder that that $100 you know, drywall repair is worth it when I, you know. So it is, it is an interesting question. Also, you know, customers are not always right but there's this reality and we talk about this a lot internal. My power went out last, uh, last Monday. It went out for four and a half hours and the community Facebook group was about to riot. Like let's grab the pitchforks, find the power company because they haven't even updated an ETA of when this is coming back yet. And you know, it's getting late. We'd like to go to bed in air conditioning. And my, I had two simultaneous responses in my mind, one, I didn't say anything because I don't participate in that stuff. But <laughs> my first thought was, this is really complex. Like power grids are not simple things. There's an ongoing storm with a tornado in the area that workers have to go out and assess and repair the damage. Second is, you guys are spoiled and should stop complaining. And I guess the third one that I never really got to because it's not in my industry was just, man, the marketer for the power company, what the heck are, what are they supposed to do? Because this is an insane expectation and yet we still have to live up to it to some degree. But part of a great brand that also I assume Dave is setting those right expectations from the beginning. Yes. Setting expectations is everything. I learned that from sales. You have to um, set the expectation that you're able to fulfill upon and make sure it matches up with the expectation that the buyer or your customer wants that is going to meet their needs. Um, you know, I, I think back to your prior question about how would I, if I were a salesperson, go back to my builder and my, my boss and say, Hey, we need to, we need to fix this hundred dollar drywall problem. And I would advise that person, to look back on the culture and the core values that the owner of the company espouses. And I would use the core value to go back and say, uh -huh. listen, in what you taught me, we stand for, it says that we will respect the customer at all costs or whatever. Right. And that's another area of how people don't really understand how to use core values as a management tool. Um, if you have an issue with a team member and you're a manager, the last thing you want to do is attack them and criticize them, but you've got to correct the behavior some way. And behavior is the key word, because if you can tie that back to the values of the company and say, look, respect is one of our core values. And 
yesterday, I noticed in this meeting, you know, there was a breakdown and um, let's talk about how that core value was the breakdown. It's not you, but let's change that behavior, whatever. And I think you can go back to uh, uh, management and, uh, or ownership with the core values that they express and, and maybe resolve problems that way. That's but a great idea. I think there was that. Um, oh, go ahead there. Go, please. Uh, what, what was the video with Chick-fil-A where they had, I think it was an internal training video where they, it, it's, you watch it, I'm like, I feel like I'm going to cry right now. It goes through each person in the restaurant and they're sitting there like, this person just found out their mother has cancer. This one has this. And it's each person's story. Mm. I forgot the resolve on that, but essentially that's the intent. You go to Chick-fil-A, it's the same experience. They treat you as if you could be, you could have the worst day of your life that day and they're going to treat you like that, that could be happening. Um, so I really like the core values because then that like it's the decision making. You could be wrong, but as long as that person is operating within the core values, I don't right. think that you could then correct the ship like, oh, okay. Hey, well, you're five dollars over on your expense report, but good job hitting that core value. That that conversation shouldn't happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then um going back to education, I, I think back to to just building on my own and then just the this idea of more people want to consume more content. Like there's YouTube content. That's just very, very, very specific. I bought a camera recently and there's like thousands of videos on this one camera model. Do you think there's an opportunity for builders on the digital side to create more educational content that would set those expectations so that they, they just know more, they're, they're more educated buyer, but underneath the education for that builder. Yes, I do. And I, I do. Yes. And I think there's multiple benefits for that. Um, first of all, that type of content is going to appeal to certain types of buyers you'll have your analytics and your engineering minds who are going to want to know every detail and you'll have the, and the trailblazers really like don't me. want to have to go through every detail either. No. They'll thank you yeah. for it. But if you, uh, if you were a home builder and you decided to film every element of the construction process, you can also use that as a training tool as you're bringing new crews on or whatever, and maybe partner with your subs, fund that, and then they can be training their people. And those best practices then can go on to an iPad or be in the field to make sure that they're following the procedures correctly and they're visual. So they don't need a lot of verbal and you get over the language barrier much easier that way as well. Uh, and then if you if you shared all of those things on your website, just looking at three or four of those as a prospective buyer would tell me, wow, these guys are, they've buttoned down. I'm feeling much better about them. I haven't seen this from anybody else I'm looking at. And you guys know exactly. content is king today. Content is everything. So the SEO value that you would get out of those things as well uh, would just drive more traffic. So I think yeah. that's a, a great, great idea. And content doesn't get tired. That, that's, I'm going back to the joke I just no. made about the salespeople. But a salesperson is going breathe. to lose energy talking to that engineering type person constantly, right? Yeah. But that, that video can just keep playing over and over and, and can have the same emotional impact and, and educational impact. And, and it's self-service. It's available 24 hours a day. There's so many, so many great parts about content. Um, I, want, I want the designer in me... Dave wants to ask you does some design questions though, because your stuff is so beautiful. Uh, 
but it also leads me back to your copy is amazing. So like Solstice is a project that you work on. The tagline mm-hmm. is Home Sweet Highline, which harkens to my favorite ad campaign of all time, all time, all time, is uh, Pork the Other White Meat, where they would have billboard style things around town or at bus stops, whatever, that would just say a play on a, a well-known phrase. And my favorite one is one potato, two potato, three potato, pork. <laughs> it's not what it's put, but it just, I, 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 so I love, I love great copy too. Is there a rule of thumb at Miles Brand where you guys tend to, obviously you're trying to get that DNA like you talked about, but does, does it vary by builder or do you tend to start with visual elements and then find copy? Does copy come to mind first and then you look for visual elements? How does that magic happen? Well, it starts with our branding process where we're looking for their DNA. Uh, and like I said before, that's usually within the organizational values and experience and team in some way that's just unique. Nobody else has that mixture. And then what are they trying to do with their products and and what are they trying to achieve, their their purpose, if you will. But then it gets down specifically to, you know, other elements of product or whatever. And, you know, I mentioned that I never worked in an ad agency. I went to school on an art scholarship and I was fortunate to have a father and a mother that supported that. That's very unusual because there's like, what are you going to do as you're going to art school? (laughs) Good luck with that. As long as you don't have Uh, kids or get married, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I was sitting in my advisor's office and I was the first day because I had to see what grade point I had to keep to keep my scholarship. And there were covers of time magazine on the wall that had been created by students. And Hmm. this, something went off in my head and I'm like, we get time magazine every week at my home. And I love it. I used to read it from cover to cover. It never occurred to me that someone could have a job creating the cover of time magazine Mm because they're cool. I mean, they're conceptual and they're topical and, and, and they're laden with emotion because it's, it's something important. And so I asked, well, how do I get to do that? And she said, well, that's the graphic design program. And that's an illustration class. And I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> and ever since then, I've been aspiring to do the level of work that turns me on when I see it, like the pork campaign does for you. Mm-hmm. And I've studied it and I, I, I'm in awe of people who can write copy that move me to take action, that connect with me emotionally. The, and, and, and again, because I love that stuff, that's why I focused on the new home industry, because it's a huge purchase filled with emotion, right? Yeah. It's where you're going to live. And, and then I've always been a visual person. I'm totally motivated and, and turned on by beauty, beauty in general. And so today, more than ever, the visual is the key. Because advertising, the pace of advertising has changed. It's so much quicker than it's ever been before. You don't have time to explain it. So you've got to have beautifully produced visuals that connect with people emotionally, that they get the story immediately. And then home sweet highline. That's it, right? If if you have to explain it, yeah. you have not done a good job. I feel like that's the that's like the tent stake. Like the entire tent is the visual, but you couldn't communicate that to someone else unless you showed them said visual. So it feels like some of your work, that, that, that copy is like the thing that you you can tangibly put your hand around, but it's 
the, the visual is extremely, extremely important, like you said. We have something else in common because I, I didn't go to school for marketing either. I, I'm a designer, graphic designer, and I've really? read a ton of marketing books and branding books, but, but human psychology and marketing terminology seemed like something that was easier to learn to do than to draw or understand visual weight and other concepts that were more nebulous. I felt like I needed to get in a class to learn that. So mm. that's probably why I'm, I'm so drawn to, to what you do. Well, you know, talking about visuals and how important they are, that was one of the first things I saw was the, um, the lack of good visuals in the early 90s. But now today, uh, photography is so cheap and it's stock photography and there's no distinction and it's people looking straight at the camera smiling or taking selfies i mean they're they're so lame uh, they're it's a huge opportunity and <laughs> there's so much lame being used well i'm like just like just like a salesperson would have to convince a builder to spend a hundred dollars to fix a problem uh if we have to right. convince a client to do uh, original photography and own it and have images that represent what you do that no one else has. It's probably not the right, right. I mean, we use stock photography all the time mm -hmm. as support mm -hmm. because it's just, you just have to, but uh, yeah, if you look at our work, it's almost everything you see is an original photo or video that, that we've art directed and And there's a strategy behind every one of the things we've done there. I feel like being authentic with that is, is the most important part with, with using the lifestyle because I'm so I'm down here in Florida by the beaches and I'll see different builders use Florida images. I'm like, that's not a Florida river. That's not a Florida beach. Like, what do you mean? Like, get that out of here. Like, yeah. It's so yeah. fake. Like it's not real. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to building that trust that, that yeah, exactly. someone should have a word counter for how many times we say that word on trust, this episode. Trust. But I, I also want to shift a little bit before we run out of time, Dave, to, to master plan branding and storytelling compared to, home builder branding and storytelling, because it seems to me as land becomes ever more expensive, you only have two choices as a developer. You either pay whatever price you must pay to be in the location that already has market demand, or you have to create a place from land to brand. See what I did there? So talk, talk to me about master plan branding and storytelling, because it seems like uh, one of the things I talk about a lot for those who may not have heard it before is we talk about the five P's of marketing with, with our builder partners all the time. And the fifth one that we, that we talk about is place. And I jokingly say next to place, you can't change this one. So I hope you fix the other four because the only time you get to affect place is when you start something. Once, you know, people drive by the project for two years and there's only been one house built, the story has been told that, that you don't necessarily have control of anymore. But when you start out, you get to, you get to call the shots, kind of set the stage for, for how this community is going to be perceived. And I imagine yeah. that's an incredibly important part as builders are forced more and more in developers to find land that might be not an A location, but a B plus. And how do we use branding to make it an A? That's absolutely right. Um, and uh, again, I see a distinction between the importance of branding for home builders being primarily internal so that they can execute well uh, with people buying into their culture and their values. Hmm. Whereas with the master plan and for builders, the marketing efforts are all about lead conversion, you know, feeding the sales mm -hmm. machine for master plan communities uh, from land to brand really comes into play there. And that's, uh, I, 
I just love it so much because having a new piece of ground, even if it's a B location, uh, it's, it's a blank slate. And if you put the right team together and think it through and look at the competition and look at what people want, it's challenging, but, uh, it's, 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 you know, we like to say today, it's not about storytelling. It's about helping people live the story. Right. And so, uh, having a vision, um, creating a name that has a story behind it, that, uh, invites, exploration and and learning more learning uh, immediately uh instead of just stony brook or you know a, a a generic name uh a name that sets an expectation and a tagline like uh like you mentioned before home sweet highline a highline canal is a 72 mile uh highline canal that delivered water to the early settlers here in denver solstice is right on that canal and you can buy a home there for $450,000. Anywhere else in Denver, you pay over a million dollars. You pay a premium to be on that canal. So mm. positioning it around that and solstice being uh, the story of uh, uh, 365 days a year living uh, all through the seasons here, being outdoors, Colorado lifestyle. There's a whole strategy behind all of those things. And, uh, and so that's, that's, the thing I love most because uh, we get to contribute to creating great places for people to live and then we get to market it. And so we get to go do lifestyle specific to the place. And we're always three or four years out. I mean, from, <laughs> from helping people see the future before it's there. Right. Yeah. And today oh. we're seeing a shift in consumer psyche around everything that's happening socially now people are thinking, you know what? That B location out on the edge of town is looking better and better to me. Yeah, that value oh, trade-off is one and I'll take. got some amenities and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, it, it's, it's very interesting what's happening here today. I'm guessing this doesn't happen with anyone you work with, but one of the things I have noted, noticed about master plans in general, and I'm curious your take on this, is I've seen a lot who do a fantastic job of telling the future, as you just said, and that's what sparked this. I've got to ask Dave this question. They don't always make the transition to it's here now, but uh, some, some of the visual stuff I see, it's mm, I like, you. we'll work with someone and they, they might only be in one master plan and then other community locations. And I, and I'll go to the master plan page and two years after they've been building homes, there's still just renderings and sketches of people walking down the street. And sometimes I even go visit them. Like the streets here now, we're open, open for business. Do you, is that ever a thing that you've seen where, where, where people forget they need to come back for kind of a round two as it starts coming to life? Or how would you talk to people about that need to kind of maintain versus just tell the future and then let it sit for the, for the life of the project? Yeah, that's such an interesting occurrence because the investment that goes into creating a master plan community or even a 80 acre <clears throat> subdivision for whoever's managing that not to be on top of it every single day is uh, shameful. It's irresponsible. And, and it, it means something to people. It, it's, it doesn't build well, it's their just, it's T just, word. When you finally do all that, hard work because the hardest part 
really is setting like this thing that doesn't exist. It's coming and you're going to love it and you should pay for it now for this future thing. It's going to become, and it, and it just, yeah, I'm like, congratulations. You guys have it 20% sold out, but can we get some real people playing in the real street that has been done for the last year or not in the street? Don't, is, don't play in the street kids. Uh, my guess sidewalk. is, I'm sorry. My guess is whoever's managing the marketing would completely agree with you. And that there's some kind of an economic decision that's being mm. made. We're going to spend to launch, right? Yeah. It's surprising to me as, you know, over the years we talked to, to developers and who come to us for help and they don't, they have never heard of a builder co-op program. They're not building in mm. a fee in their land sales to bring all the builders together so that we can manage a campaign on behalf of the community and, and the builders <clears throat> pay for that. Uh, yeah. it does, it's a great cost savings for the developer, but we know we can market it better uh, by pooling our resources as opposed to each builder marketing it on their own. And so, uh, you know, it's probably an economic decision. Somebody is saying, would you say it's fair then Dave, that marketing a master plan? Cause we have a couple of builders we work with who the builder has decided to be the developer on a master plan kind of on the side. And mm. we've asked the question, are you engaging someone like Miles Brand or et cetera to tell, well, we're just going to, we're going to spend a little bit more, but it's another community and we're going to build a clubhouse and build a sign and it's a master plan, but it doesn't really need to be that different. And shockingly, uh, you can't all maybe see the ironic look on my face. They struggle more than the typical master plan would, especially around launch because they haven't put all of that effort into selling the dream. But kind of throughout the whole part, it seems like, so on a scale of one to 10, the normal community being, you know, a five, how hard is it? How much work is required to make a master plan successful in comparison? There's a lot of elements that go into that. I mean, the location, the school district, um, the product mix, the competition, who the customer is, all of those things are challenging. But again, the investment that goes into it demands you have a strategy to accelerate your absorption and get through that project as quickly as possible because it's a huge return on investment if you save one year uh, or 18 months on the back end. So mm -hmm. creating a story and, and a brand around a place that will drive momentum from day one, even before that with a pre-sale campaign where you're creating scarcity and inviting a bunch of people to a meeting where you're only going to release 10 lots, even if it's a thousand homes that are going to be built there and you're building your backlog around that for the life of the community. We've done that time and time again. Mm -hmm. And it's a process, but it's so important that you get that momentum and maintain it and, and uh, out think and execute your competition in that way. I think when that M word is used master plan, there's this expectation that's set. Like if, if I, if I'm like, Oh, what's master plan? There better be a clubhouse. There's maybe a pool. There's certain things. And if those images, if like that lifestyle is not sold enough with the marketing, as far as if there's not enough assets, if there's not enough videos, renderings, it's like, is this really going to happen? Like, it's not here yet. You're saying it's here, but there's yeah, not to try to add more to clarity to what I feel. To I think it's people who who think that master plan just means we have multiple builders here and there's multiple streets and sections. There, 
that that could be technically true, but if if you want the value created for both the customer, the developer, and the builders in it, it's got to be more than just there's multiple builders here in this project. Yeah, I did a little graphic for one of my early IBS speeches, and uh, I had a picture of a master plan community, and it was all rooftops. And the headline was Master Plan My Ass. And, uh, <laughs> Love it. Let's <laughs> be honest, which is, yeah. this is great. Uh, I thought it was funny until my client was like, if you ever do that again, you know, it wasn't my client's community, but, yeah. you know, it was uh, kind of a, a challenge to, to the industry um, because it's, you know, people don't want sprawl. They want mm-hmm. better quality of life. And there's so, so much that goes into that. It's, it's very, very challenging. Um, again, as we create the future before it's built, if it's going to take three or four years for the clubhouse to be built in a pool, well, that's tough. And I understand why economically right. it, it, it may not make sense. Uh, and so you got to paint a beautiful picture and you got to find those pioneers to get in there and start it going and get it going so that it will be built. And, but it's, uh, you know, it's an art, definitely an art. Well, Dave, Early okay, here, here's what I want to wrap with. What, what is the, what's the project that you've worked on in your career that you are, and I, we don't want to make anyone mad. So just the one that you thought was the most fun, not that you're necessarily the most proud of, but you had the most fun working on as, with your team. Well, I can tell you a couple of things that uh, there, there, there have been so many campaigns we've done. and. And what's been great about that is I've, I've probably worked with over a hundred creative people in the last 30 years, art directors and writers. And mm-hmm. it's been so great because I've always tried to give them an environment where they can do the best work of their lives. And because it's, that's what we try to do. And so uh, our home, from a home builder standpoint, I've become really best friends with one of, with Dan Horner from True Homes. True Homes is independently owned. They were created in 2016. They came out of C.P. Morgan mm-hmm. Homes, uh, where I worked with them. And uh, we've, we worked with them from day one on the name and the brand and all of their branding, and we do all of their digital marketing. Um, they, they sell about 2,000 homes a year. They were the 2019 uh, Professional Builder uh, National Housing Quality Gold Award winner on their first try. Yeah, and that's a hard and one to win. That is that there's a lot of awards that don't mean much, but that one means a lot. They've been named seven times as the, the best place to work in Charlotte. They live their core values. My core values and Dan's match up from a spiritual standpoint and from from a practical executional standpoint. So uh, I'm so honored to work with them because they are the highest performing home builder, independently owned home builder that, that I've had the privilege to work with. But in that same sentence, I'll put uh, Shea Homes of Colorado, which is, uh, Shea is independently owned, but they're a builder developer that is really, really equally in, uh, uh, focused on the quality of the place, not just the homes that they build. And they, we have one, I bet you, 30 plus national gold award winners uh, working with them on community after community. 
And uh, I just got an email from them last week saying, well, I got a phone call actually from their director of marketing, but I asked her to send me something I could share with the team. And, and she said, you know, we, we discussed this new project and we, we all agree we're going to work with Miles Brand. And they bring us into it because they want us to push the envelope. We want the, us, they want us to challenge them to do a better job. And we come in with a perspective that's different than the land planners or the engineers or their internal land team. You know, and they they value that. And that is rare. I mean, we've both of those two examples we've been working with for over 20 years continually. That's great. And you can't do that unless you earn it every time, right? And they value what you do. And it's equally crazy. I'm just realizing that your your background here on our call. Did you build a, a niche? In your conference room, it looks like you built your conference room around your awards, which it also looks like you need to build a bigger <laughs> conference room. Yeah, another wall, uh, opposite wall. How many nationals in total are standing up behind you? I'm not sure how many are there. We've we've won 113. <laughs> oh my um, goodness! And we've yeah, been on stage seven. every year since 1990 wow. at the nationals awards, and that very cool. That's uh, amazing. That's that's hard to do. That is hard I mean, to do. That's hard to do. It's a testament to our clients and our dedication and our passion. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. And it was great to get to know you better and and the work that your company does. It's been a pleasure, long overdue. And again, thank you so much for the invitation. I hope our audience uh, gets a couple of things they can use. Awesome. Fantastic time talking with Dave and uh, they do amazing work. I don't know of a better agency with a longer track record of, of helping to create unique campaigns for the kickoff. Like we were talking about with them though, you, you, everyone, not just his, his clients, everyone needs to do a better job of transitioning from this thing's not here yet, but it's going to be awesome to it's here and it's awesome. (laughs) There's just that there's this weird, like, why are there still renderings of the clubhouse? The clubhouse has been done for three months. Let's get it on there. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. All right. This week's question of the week is, when it comes to new communities, do you have a process that you use? Do you guys design your own logos? Do you work with people to create those logos? There, I've, def- I've worked for different organizations who approach this differently. Some it's like, we create a name and a logo for a community, that's like way overkill. Just throw the name on the sign, keep the same colors, let's go. So I'm, we're not talking about just master plans, although that's certainly allowed. I'm just curious how many of you feel like your organization currently puts much effort into placemaking, branding, storytelling of the location prior to it going public. Uh, and then, or, or if you just, you know, they tell me the name, I add it to the website, put on some floor plans and and we rock and roll. No, no wrong answers. I'm just really curious trying to get a pulse of what everyone's doing out there. And if you find value to it, and if you found a way to do it easily, because you certainly shouldn't or, or don't want to spend thousands of dollars telling the story of, of every single one of your neighborhoods necessarily either. All right. And with that, for published articles, blog posts, videos, and more, check out doconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and everywhere else we are online. 
That'll do it for this week. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye.